Anything can happen in the next half hour. So exciting, the audience will stop and cheer. So delighting, it will run for 50 years. So exciting, the audience will stop and cheer. Stand by for action. Airzone Podcast 20. you to AR Zone podcast number 20. Joining me today are AR Zone admins Barbara DeGrand, Ronnie Lee and Roger Yates. Hi everyone. Hi Carolyn. Hi Carolyn. Also joining us today is our special guest Gary Smith. Gary is the author of the Thinking Vegan blog site and with his wife runs Evolotus PR, a public relations agency working for a better world. In June of this year Gary assisted the Beagle Freedom Project in the rescue of nine beagles and four rabbits all of whom had been used in an animal testing lab. This opened his eyes to the importance of focusing on individuals and saving individual lives. Gary believes these individuals would have been overlooked if not for this so-called single issue campaign. We've asked Gary to join us today to discuss vivisection. While the term vivisection specifically refers to surgical procedures on living organisms, it's more broadly defined as any experimentation on living beings. We'll explore what practical steps we can take to educate the public about vivisection, as well as those we can take toward ending it. Gary, would you please tell us about your rescue work and why ending vivisection is so important to you? Uh, sure. Uh, hello, everybody. Hey, Gary. Hey. 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 Back in the end of December of 2010, um, Shannon Keith received a phone call letting her know that she had 24 hours to fly up to Northern California uh, to rescue two uh, beagles who were being released from a lab, uh, an animal testing lab. Um, so Shannon, with a couple of friends, flew out, picked up the two beagles, and drove them back to Los Angeles. And that night, she gave us a call and asked us if we wanted to come by and meet the you know, meet the dogs, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and of course we did. And it was just this incredible experience as an animal rights activist to actually have an experience of meeting one of these animals who had been rescued from, you know, essentially a torture lab. And so we got to speaking with Shannon and thought this would be a really great way that we could A, save animals and B, educate the public um, about what's happening um, specifically to beagles, but in a greater way to vivisection in general. So it took about six months before we were able to get our hands on more dogs. Um, and as you can imagine, trying to get laboratories to release dogs is almost an impossible task. And then add in the uh, fact that we're basically animal rights attorneys, people who do media for a living, um, kind of makes that an even more difficult task. Um, so in June of this year, uh, Shannon, myself, and a couple of people uh, rented a van, drove up to Northern California, and rescued nine beagles. And then subsequently, I believe nine days later, 
Um, the same lab released three more beagles to us. So that brought it to a total of 14 beagles so far and four bunnies. Why did they release the animals to you at all? To answer your question, I have to sort of go back a little bit. I guess in in the the vivisection world, uh, there's something called lethal dose 50%, so that 50% of the animals who are having toxins tested on them um, will die through the experimentation, and that allows them to know how much of a chemical is toxic. We believe, and it's really difficult to get most of these statistics because the USDA doesn't keep track of this, that the majority of the animals who are being tested either die during the experiment or are euthanized directly after. It's very, very rare that they're willing to release the animals to a rescue or to individuals, I I believe for a few reasons. One is once the animal is released, they become an ambassador. People then get an opportunity to find out about what's happening because the general public believes two things. One is that most of the testing that is being done is on rats and mice. Um, And the other thing the general public believes is that this is all basically being done on pharmaceutical drugs to save people's lives. And it turns out that that isn't true. I mean, yes, most are rats and mice, um, but I believe, and again, difficult to find statistics, that anywhere between, um, I think, 75 to 85% of all testing is being done on household items, cosmetics, lawn care, et cetera, and not being done to you know, save lives and to you know, come up with new medications to, you know, change the world. So they were survivors from the LD50s, so they were pretty lucky um, beagle, especially since they also then released them, because normally they would kill the survivors as well, wouldn't they? Yeah, they kill them, and then then unfortunately we also just learned recently from um, a a heartbreaking story. We actually were contacted by some, a different lab this time. Um, We haven't actually a contact or a liaison who knows somebody who knows somebody and sometimes believe it or not they actually sell them to other labs or other universities which is what happened in our case when we were promised we were going to get some beagles and then it turned out that the in quotes sponsor decided not to allow them to go and they sold them um, so yeah so that's another wrinkle in this that sometimes these poor dogs and, and poor animals in general um, are then sold to other labs for another drug or another, you know, cosmetic or shampoo or whatever. So that that's kind of another thing. And, you know, in, in our case, wife and I have our own PR agency. And with Beagle Freedom Project, you know, we, we sat with this strategically to figure out how do we tell the story to the media so that we could get A, attention and B, educate the public. Um, you know, one, one way one would do that would be to obviously say, oh, look at these horrible things that are happening to animals in labs. And I think we all know that that's not going to get any media play. Um, you know, and, and the way that we did it was to tell a story about how these beagles had been rescued. They'd spent their entire life in an animal testing lab, but now they're touching grass for the first time. They're outside for the first time. They're going to have this great life. And the media really ate that up. And with the exception of maybe only one or two of the 20-some-odd stories, were all incredibly positive and asked all the questions that we wanted them to ask as to why are they testing on beagles, why are they testing on products, period, you know, household guide, you know, items, et cetera. I thought this was only for medical testing. So that kind of throws another wrinkle into it is, you know, the possibility of people finding out about this, you know, that kind of like ruins that mythology that they're that they're playing to the public.
figure of uh, 70 to 80 percent uh, of experiments done for uh, so-called non-medical purposes. Um, I, I think that's that's a figure that would be disputed, I'm sure, by um, animal researchers and their supporters in, in this country who seem to claim that the majority of experiments are done for for, for medical reasons or so-called medical reasons. Um, I don't think that matters um, from a moral point of view. From a moral point of view, they're, they're all just as bad. Um, but in terms of campaigning, I think it's, it's kind of important because um, it's much easier to end the um, experiments uh, for testing cosmetics and testing household products um, through a boycott by consumers. See, the, the, the public can boycott those things, whereas it's very hard or would be very hard to persuade the public to boycott pharmaceutical products. And, and that's, that's, the, that, that's the difference. It's where the public can be involved in instituting a boycott. Um, and that would, the amount of vivisection that could be ended through that will depend on which, which type of vivisection it is. Yeah, I agree with you completely. I mean, I think, I mean, at least in terms of Beagle Freedom Project, if you go to the website, I mean, our focus has been on this is what you can do today. You know, you can basically make these new um, purchases, you know, where where you're basically, you know, not supporting this industry. And I don't know if it's the same in the UK. I know in the US, it's the law that all pharmaceuticals have to be tested um, on animals. And unfortunately, with how unhealthy most people are, at least in the U.S., it's pretty difficult to expect people to seriously boycott medications. You know what I mean? And, and so I agree yeah. with you. I think to, to, that if we think that we're going to make like huge inroads that way, um, I think that's a bad way to go. And I, again, looking at it just sort of strategically, um, I think that you can get the public at least from from my experience, I mean, I, I kind of think we're almost doing it in the opposite way. It seems like PCRM and other people are trying to get great apes to be considered, um, I don't know what the word is, but so that they can't be tested on because they share such a large percentage of DNA with humans. And I kind of think we should be going the opposite way because I think that's an intellectual campaign um, versus a more emotional campaign, which is um, people love dogs and cats and most of the world. And if you can, you know, get people worked up and to get them to even just engage in this issue first by seeing beagles or or cats or other dogs being experimented on i think you can then bring it to the next step and talk about the medical testing not even being effective let alone being immoral um you know so i, I think that in terms of campaigning i agree with you ronnie that we can actually get people to stop buying shampoos and we can get them to you know buy alternative lipsticks etc because most of those alternatives are just as nice, just as expensive as the ones being tested on animals. So you're not asking people to make some huge change in, in the way they live. Obviously, asking somebody who's diabetic to not use insulin is probably just not going to happen. Mm. You see, I, um, the, 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 the other, um, another way of doing it, I don't know whether it would apply in the USA as well, but, um, uh, but in, the, in the UK, uh, Animal Aid have started a campaign um, against the um, the use of animal experiments and the funding of animal experiments by by charities by by medical charities and of course 
the public can be involved there because they they can boycott those charities and give their money to other charities instead or boy, boycott the shops that those charities use to raise money so that's you know that's that's another area where the public can be effective against um to reduce um medical experiments on animals through but 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 once again it wouldn't there's still a lot of experiments that that wouldn't cover but it's another way that the public can be involved and i don't know whether in the usa there's that same situation where you you've you've got um charities or not not-for-profit organizations um that people can donate to that actually fund experiments on animals and where there could be a campaign to get people to actually boycott those organizations yeah, I, th I actually think that's a great idea. I know that there are websites that tell you which charities do and don't experiment on animals, but I don't know if anybody's heading that in any real way out here. But I think that is a great, a great campaign. How do you prevent like a backlash in some ways if you get people to pay attention to beagles because people live with dogs and, and beagles are a particularly docile and sweet breed or species? What I mean by backlash, how do you prevent this from just uh, reinforcing the speciesism that's already in society where people tend to go with the easiest or the least change, which would mean they aren't going to be disturbed by rats and mice being used, but they would be maybe disturbed about dogs and cats. How do you make sure that you're moving forward rather than having this move us backwards? Yeah, I, I think there's sort of two ways to look at it. I mean, one is you have to be careful about the outreach that you do, you know, that you do obviously focus on the dogs and cats, but you also talk about the bigger picture as well, you know, that, that all animals should be free and shouldn't be being tested on. Um, so you have to be, you know, that's a fine line that one has to work. But in terms of materials, obviously, you would have, you know, the beagles and the cats out front to just get people to pay attention in the first place. Um, and then the kind of the second answer is, you know, we actually fostered uh, Malcolm, one of the, the, the beagles from the, the June um, release, and he stayed with us for five weeks. And that experience really sort of changed the way that I kind of look at activism. Um, for me, it's more about how do we save individual lives? Obviously, I want, you know, animals to not be eaten and not be used, period. Um, but in the short term, if we can get 20 beagles out of some place, if we can get some rats out of some place, some bunnies out of some place, or if we could just make a huge dent in the, um, what I guess in the U.S. they say, uh, the USDA says it's 1 million animals are being tested in the U.S. every year, and that doesn't include rats and mice. Um, activists say it's about 17 million total. You know, if, if we can make a dent in that 17 million, those are animals who are still alive. And, and one of those things, too, if we sort of jump ahead a little bit, in terms of trying to create bands like the the band that we did media for the for free west hollywood campaign um you know the other side continually kept saying well this is about the cash register you know the cash register speaks and people want these things and you know a ban is a way to take away the cash register it's sort of a long answer to at least in, in terms of how i'm doing it going back to we have to be careful about including all the animals in whatever campaign we're doing, but focus on the ones that I think will get us the attention. And then two, um, try to figure out how to save as many lives as we possibly can, because it, I think we all know in the short term, we're just not going to get the vegan world we all want. So how can we save some animals right now? Going back to those figures you just gave, Gary, you talked about an estimate of one million. Is that right? And then they're, they're the ones yes. that are not counting mice and rats. So the 17 million yeah, that can't, is a, be, can't be right. If, we, if we're talking about 80 and 90% of all non-humans used are going to be mice in particular, but also mice and rats, 
then 17 million can't be right if there's one million they're excluding those those two categories. The the numbers that I got is from a recent LA Times article um, that said that according to the USDA in 2009, uh, one million mammals were used uh, in that year, and that said it, that excludes rats and mice. In the same article, um, and I don't remember if they said which organizations said 17 million, but they said that according to animal protection groups, blah 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 that they say the number is closer to 17 million. I think the tough part is you're relying on um, the USDA to give accurate facts. You're relying on private testing labs, university labs, et cetera, to be giving us um, statistics. And those statistics are generally not being made public. That's always been a major problem. And obviously, if we're talking about mammals only, we're excluding amphibians, we're excluding fishes, et cetera. So the, the figures right. are obviously going to be greatly inflated. Mm -hmm. The two questions that arise for me out of the discussion so far is, one, why focus on vivisection at all? And two, what, what about the rabbits? In Carolyn's intro, she said that uh, rabbits were rescued as well, and yet you chose to focus on the beagles. And yet, isn't it true that people feel fondness about rabbits? Well, you, you said that the beagles touched grass for the very first time, and you were affected by that. And I, I remember going to see some, some rabbits that had been rescued when I was uh, an ALF press officer. And they, for the first time, touched grass when I was there. And I can still remember now the, the pleasure in their, in their faces and the way that they sank their bodies down onto the ground and, and kind of embraced it. And, you know, they, they stuck their, their arms out and, you know, kind of start to claw the ground and this kind of stuff because it's the very first time that they'd felt that. And so that was a, quite an emotional thing for me in the same way as you saw it with the beagles but also i've looked after uh, laboratory rats that have been liberated and they also would react in that, exactly the same way so i think i'm a little bit with barbara here there's a danger here isn't there of creating a hierarchy of concern about different types of animals yeah, I, I agree with you that there is a danger but i think it's again trying to figure out how to balance how do we save as many animals as quickly as we can? And then secondly, how do we wordsmith our campaigns in a way where we include other animals, but this is where the focus is? And, and to kind of go back to what you just said, um, Shannon Keith, who founded Beagle Freedom Project, will take whatever rescued animals from labs that we can get. The outreach is around the beagles, um, but any, any animals we can get, we will take from labs, period. So if, if she can get more rabbits, I don't know this to be factual. Um, my understanding is that very few rabbits actually make it out of testing, um, where I think there's a higher percentage or at least possibility of beagles making it out, depending on the types of experiments that they do on them. But I can't, I can't verify that. Yeah, but you're a PR person. Wouldn't that have made a story for you as well, wouldn't it, in terms of selling it to the, to the press, the fact that we are dealing with non-humans that don't normally make it make it out and so you can imagine that would attract the press whereas you were saying earlier that it was the fact that you're dealing with beagles that did it you know my, my my concern is it all points you know the fact that you call it the you know the beagle rescue um that kind of a, a, idea it it all kind of creates a problem in terms of general advocacy because it seems to be privileging species over others 
Well, I, I want to jump back to what you just said, though. Like, well, the media, I mean, okay, kind of an example. Um, the media is generally not interested in doing serious stories about animal rights issues. Uh, I'll give you a great example. Last, last week, SANE, Stop Animal Experimentation Now, um, released this incredible report basically talking about how non-human primates are... Um, being abused, that they're not state, they're not uh, following the animal welfare standards, et cetera, et cetera. And he named Harvard, Emory, uh, a couple of other like large universities in the United States um, as a favor to them. I sent that to my serious news media contacts. I got one response saying, "Oh, does this happen in Colorado?" I didn't get responses from anybody else. So, um, unfortunately, the media is not interested. In talking about this issue, they're not really interested in general in talking about most of these issues unless you can spin it in a way um, that is warm-hearted, that is non-threatening to them. Um, so the the reason the beagles are such a great story again is that these beagles are having a chance at a great life, and everybody who's who's you know gone to the Beagle Freedom Project page sees the video that Shannon shot of the beagles taking 15 minutes before they walk on grass for the first time, that, that gets everybody's heart, including the media, who then tell the story. Um, but that would apply you know, to rabbits, wouldn't it? That's, that's my point. It would apply to rabbits too, and, and also rats. Oh, for sure. And I think that the public would be interested. And I just don't think that, the, that, just from my perspective, in terms of trying to get media attention, I don't think that the media is going to be as excited about 15 rats being liberated for, from a, a research lab. Um, I just don't think we're going to get that kind of attention. I mean, that's just as honest as I can be on that. I don't think the public would be as interested either, to be quite honest. Right. But uh, I had another question, Gary. How, how do you know that you're actually saving lives? I know that Malcolm was saved and the ones that got away. But if they're going to continue doing these tests, will they just replace the animals with – you mentioned some were sold. So th will they just use more ferrets or more rats or get another crop of – beagles and how do you stop the demand so that you're not just you know saving those those animals but you're creating a demand for even more animals by rescuing them yeah i think that's a great question i mean the first the first answer to your question is obviously we're saving the individual lives who we're able to get out of a lab and place in loving homes um so that that's what i'm talking about in terms of like the saving lives in terms of the larger question um this is something that i've just been thinking about and, and would love a lot of feedback from you guys in terms of like what kind of campaigns can we do um to really save lives to really chip away at, at what's going on, and again, my at least initially, my thought is we need to do, we need to be doing bans, um, whether that's through um, state initiatives. I'm just talking about the U.S. now, since I don't really know the political system well outside the U.S. But in terms of like getting propositions on state ballots, um, where maybe we do a ban on all non-medical -medi testing, since non-medical testing is not mandatory by law. Um, maybe we go through the legislative process in California as well, since California is generally like one of the more progressive states in terms of legislation and try to, you know, try to push the same sort of bans through that way, where obviously if we got a ban and let's just say the number is closer to 40 percent versus 70 or 80, um, that's an insane amount of animals that would be saved, at least in the state of California, which we know we have a ton of universities and private labs in California. I know that as a fact. And that doesn't mean that they wouldn't obviously, you know, be testing more in other states. I mean, obviously you can't control that, but it's a great opportunity to get the public involved in these issues, because I think this is an issue that the public would be interested in um, if they understood it fully, starting with the 
ethical and moral issues and ending with the fact that this is just ineffective. It's not good science. And so I, I think that ultimately like bans would be the best way to do it because I think if you just go to, you know, a pharmaceutical company, you go to another pharmaceutical company, I mean, that would just take so many years before you could put enough pressure on each of these individual companies before you made any like real progress. But I mean, just imagine if you could get any sort of ban going through, I mean, that they would just not be able to do it. Because in the States, you can, you can get something, they call it ballot measures, don't they? And it's a kind of, I understand it, that if sufficient people sign, it's it's a kind of petition, isn't it? And and if you get enough people that sign that that sign that, it goes to a sort of referendum. When there's a when there's an election, it goes to a referendum, and, and the question. So as well as voting for the senators and representatives, people can vote on these. Um, I think it's it's may vary in different states, but I think it's maybe as many as ten different ballot measures, and then that if if they vote for that, then that. Uh, that gets passed into law. Is, 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 have I kind of explained that correctly? Yeah, that, that's exactly it. Now, I don't know how many states have it. I believe a large majority of states have ballot measures, but you're correct. You collect a certain amount of signatures that gets on the ballot, and then in a general election, um, if it passes, it becomes law. Now, that doesn't mean that you won't have you know companies fighting you for years before something like that actually happens. But, you know, doing something like this gives you, again, the opportunity to go to the media and educate the people um, while you're doing a campaign like this. Because it has worked. I mean, I mean, I know, for instance, there was um, one just uh, at the last presidential election. I know in Massachusetts, they actually got um, a ballot measure um, banning um, commercial greyhound racing in the state of Massachusetts. And that's happened in other uh, in other states as well. So so that was something where obviously it was the public's concern for dogs that actually pushed that. Um, in, in fact, I think in Massachusetts, it was the second when when everyone collected the, the, the signatures for the petitions um, to, to get the ballot measures. It's the, I think it was the top 10 that actually went, you know, the, the, the top 10 in, in terms of the number of signatures collected that went to the, that went to the vote and the, and the one to um, abolish commercial greyhound racing in Massachusetts actually came second. So it was the second most popular out of the 10, I think. So that mm. shows how, you know, you, you know, the public, you can get the public on side um, with these issues. Now, I'm not saying that um, vivisection would necessarily be as easy as um, something like greyhound racing, but it certainly, it does mean that, you know, the, 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 the public, you, you can get the public interested in, in protecting animals in that way. Yeah, and, and I mean, one of the great things, at least about the state of California, we were at a uh, fundraising event for Stray Cat Alliance on Saturday, and they were honoring a couple of, um, one is now a councilman, another one I believe is going to be running for some sort of um, state legislature in California, and you can't believe how much progressive pro-animal legislation has gone through Los Angeles and California as well. You know, So there's already an enormous precedent for something like that in California, and generally this is where uh, progressive measures start. You know, once you get it through California, other states then will jump in. Um, and, and this is not going to solve everything, of course. Uh, but I, I don't know if anything like this has ever happened before. I don't know if anyone's ever tried to do it this way. Um, and, you know, in, in terms of like the for free West Hollywood campaign, I mean, that's not official official. It's about as close as it can be. Um, but, you know, the, the hope with that campaign is once you start that, I mean, that would be the first U.S. city to do so 
that you know other cities will hopefully take that up and again you get an opportunity to educate people um, on these issues that that I think are more difficult to educate people and in, in, uh, sadly in a just straight honest manner. You know, sometimes it can feel so overwhelming um, when there's so many things that need to be done that we don't do anything. And when you've had a personal experience with an animal like you have with Malcolm, it certainly motivates you, kind of like um, it did with Rick O'Berry trying to feel like he has an obligation to release the the dolphins. But it also puts us in that position of trying to figure out how we're helping the general problem, which is so much more global and so much more amorphous that it's hard to get our, this for me anyway, to get my brain around how to, because I think what I, what I really see I'm trying to do is to change people's attitude and into respecting and understanding, connecting with other animals. And in some ways, you know, I think when we had uh, our Tom Reagan week, he had said something about if all the animal groups and all the animal advocates could come together and maybe pick something like perhaps animal testing, maybe we could make some kind of inroads. But it's a difficult prospect to get people on the same page. It's obvious that, um, I mean, kind of how I see the, the overall thing myself with regard to the, the abuse and the persecution of animals by um, uh, uh, other animals by by, by human beings is that it's, it's due to um, something I call human supremacism which is the which is the belief the immoral um, view, view um, that human beings are more important other animals and out of that come all the all the various different abuses of animals of which vivisection is one and what we want to do, we want we want, to, we want people to be aware of all of them. We want people to basically become, you know, anti-supremacists in, in, in their viewpoint. We want people to adopt a viewpoint where they don't consider human beings to be more important than other animals, because then animals wouldn't wouldn't be abused at all. But obviously, there's different ways into that. There's different ways of 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 getting that message through to people. And I think if we look at um, campaigners for animals. There are different things, different issues seem to um, grab the attention of campaigners more than other issues. For instance, with, with you know, with some people, it, it'll be vivisection that they'll that they'll want to campaign against. And a lot of those people will be be vegans or, or, or maybe most of them will be. Um, certainly over here, the kind of most effective campaigns against uh, vivisection not necessarily the ones by the kind of national organisations, but we're, you know the grassroots activist campaigns. All the, all those people, or virtually all the people involved in those campaigns, are vegans, and they're against all forms of animal abuse. But for some reason, it's it's vivisection that's kind of um, lit their fire, so to speak, and and that's what they concentrate on. With other people, it might be it might be the fur trade. With a, with with a lot of with, with a lot of people, it's hunting, for instance. And if you've got that um, with people that campaign for animals, that that kind of these particular issues that get those that create particular concern within those people, then I think that's going to be the same with the public. For different members of the public, there are going to be certain things that actually get those people fired up. And so I don't see anything wrong with 
um, campaigns on these various areas of animal abuse, so to speak, provided that included within that campaign, there's some sort of message that educates people about everything else. You see, mm. for instance, if I do, if I do say um, a street stall, I'm involved in a street stall that's campaigning against the fur trade. Then people come up to the stall to sign the petitions, or even if it's vivisection or, 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 or anything like that. Um, I'll also, as well as the, the leaflet that's, that's against vivisection or against the fur trade, I'll also give them information about veganism at the same time. So as to take those people for that, those people have been attracted by that particular issue. You know, they're concerned about those animals that are being abused for, for fur or experimented on or whatever. So that obviously there's obviously some concern with it in, in those people for animals. There's some compassion for animals. And, and it's a question of getting those people to kind of moving those people further by giving them, give them a leaflet about, about veganism, then um, they've already been opened up to a certain extent to, to be concerned about animals, and then that can be taken further. And, and I kind of advocate that with all campaigns. I think all campaigns should kind of try to make people aware of the bigger picture as well as just concentrating on, on that particular issue that they're, um, that they're campaigning um, about. And it kind of can, can be looked at, I think, in a kind of... Um, I don't know, more um, smaller way, perhaps. I don't know quite how, how to say it, but the, the idea of the, you're talking about, um, you're using um, people's concern for beagles to track them, um, and then educating them about other animals. You know, people are concerned about beagles. So if, some, if someone's concerned about beagles, then then you, you've got a, there's a chance there that those people are also going to be concerned about animal, other animals. Once you educate them that those anim, other animals aren't really any different to beagles, that those other animals can feel pain just as much, they're just as much individuals as, as beagles are. So that, that's that's the same that's the same kind of thing really. Using something to to attract people and then trying to extend um, the that person's compassion extend that person's concern to to other animals and to other areas of animal abuse. I, I agree with that, Ronnie. I think if, um, like what Gary's talking about, is he's talking about focusing on educating the public and particularly with the media's help, I, I just don't see that the public would be equally as receptive to the message if we were focusing on rats rather than beagles. No, effectively, it doesn't mean anything then, does it? I mean, what Ronnie, Ronnie has said you know, is a hierarchical statement about trying to get no, people no, to be... Well, it's well, it, well, it, it is because, you yeah. know, yeah, that's right. But what happens is what you're going to attract with this kind of campaign is you're going to attract the attention of beagle lovers, but not anti-vivisectionists. And so consequently, just as Barbara said a few minutes ago, what will happen is the system will just start researching on the types of animals that these beagle lovers don't care about in the first place. Because the real problem, the fundamental issue as always, is cultural speciesism. And as Gary Francione said in chapter two of Intro to Animal Rights, vivisection is probably the least likely campaign to win when most people in society are deeply speciesist. Most people in our society and in Gary's society are deeply speciesist. So why would they care 
about animals that are being used if they think that their children are going to be saved because of them. If they're going to stuff their kids' mouths full of McDonald's hamburgers and cheese pizzas, they're not going to care about animals being used at all. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to just find little bits of sympathy somewhere. Oh, well, they're like dogs. But that just means that they'll transfer then to rats and mice and everything else. That's all it means. But you see, Roger, there's, um, there are anti-vivisectionists um, that eat meat. You know, certainly historically there have been. I mean, at one time, you know, the, 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 the organisations like the, uh, in the UK, like the, the, the BUAB, British Union for Abolition of Vivisection, I remember a time when um, all those people ate animals. That, that it's, that's not the case now. I think probably the majority of people in, involved in the BUAB are, are probably vegans or, or at least vegetarians. But there was one time, there was a time when those people um, were, were, were were meat eaters. And, yeah, and so you your, have a your point being. My, my point is, is, is that it's possible that, 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 that those people were against vivisection, but they ate meat, right? So what you would do is you would take you would take the concern of those people for vivisected animals and you would say to them, to them look you know you're concerned about these animals being tortured in laboratories but look how is how is meat eating any different to that you know the the, the animals are kept in appalling conditions they're slaughtered um and 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 you know they go through a, a, they go through a process that, that 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 could be said to amount to to torture as well. You see, so what you do you take you take that person's concern for a certain area of animal abuse and extend it to to to, to other areas. You see, that's the thing. That's how you that that's that's how you do it. You take and and people are gonna different things will attract different people. Diff, different things will will bring people's bells or, or um, yeah you know one one thing will, will kind of attract one person something else will attract somebody else in terms of animal abuse and then what you do once that per, that person has obviously got some concern some compassion for animals you know there are pe people in society that don't care about animals at all and, and what's going to happen with them is, yeah i know is, all this ronnie but what, what's this got yeah, to do with say with saving individual lives we're, we're talking about saving individual individual lives that's where yeah. gary started with yeah. in the first place yeah, what, if 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 it's a question that they're just going to transfer from one species to another and not only that, we've not even talked about the global picture. And so if you make a dent in vivisection in some way in the United States or in the UK, it'll just get transferred to China. It makes no, it makes no difference at all. The trade will be transferred unless you can do something, like Barbara said, about the demand. Yes, well, what you do, what you do then is, is you, you try to, you, you, you then try to help people in China to, to, to campaign against vivisection. You know, once it's you know, once it's ended in 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 say the only country that was left where they did vivisection was China, then anti-vivisectionists all over the world could concentrate on China and in end, ending vivisection in China. Uh, but you see, I, I think that you're not going to. There are going to be people. The reality of the situation is is now. Now, I much prefer personally to um, to campaign for veganism. I, whatever I do, I'm campaigning for veganism. Even as I said, if I'm out doing it, doing a stall against the fur trade, I'll give people vegan leaflets because I think that's really important. 
But there are people um, in the animal protection movement that campaign in, in, in other ways. There's other things that they concentrate because for, for whatever reason, they feel perhaps more strongly about one particular issue, even though they they may be vegan and, and they're against all the other abuses. There's often one particular issue that those people um, concentrate on. And that and that's and, and that's that's the reality. And I don't think we can change that. But what we've got to try to do is say to those people that when you're campaigning against this particular thing, try at the same time to educate people to be vegan. Because I don't think you're I think you're banging your head against a brick wall if you're if you're trying to say it to people what you the, the only thing you should be doing is going out there and educating people to be vegan. that's not that's not going to happen. That's not going to work. It's unrealistic. You've just got to try to encourage people to include that within their overall campaign. Well, yeah, but you talk about being unrealistic. It's unrealistic to make any sort of dent in vivisection in societies which are deeply speciesist. What, why should people who are speciesist, which means that they're in favour of using non-humans for this, that and the other, why should they be opposed to this non-trivial use? Because they're already in favour of the trivial uses, like circuses, like meat-eating, like dairy. And so why, wouldn't, why would they be opposed to this use, which is non-trivial, because they think it's going to save their children? And so the only thing, logically, what would happen is that you might save a couple of beagles, and it means that they'll just replace them with rats and rabbits and everything else, because they'll go down the kind of scale until they get to the types of non-humans they don't care about because they're speciesists. That's all that will happen, isn't I, it? I think, no, I think, I, think, I think it depends how you do it. I mean, if, yes, you, if, it if, if, there, was, if there was an audience, an ordinance passed, let's say there was a ballot measure in California that said, right, all, all animal experiments for non-medical purposes are going to be abolished. And say you and say, you see, once you've got that in one state, then there's a better chance of getting it in another state and in another state and in another state, you see. So at least some vivisection would be got rid of. OK, there'd still be a lot left. But by getting rid of that, some of it, you are actually preventing animals from, you know, from, from being experimented on. Because probably what will happen is it isn't, it isn't necessarily the case that they would just do the animal experiments elsewhere. What they might do is say, okay, you know, there's no, we're not, we're not legally obliged to use animal experiments to test these products, so we'll use alternatives. Well, can I, I understand a, all that, really. I, I mean, maybe question? we should bring, up, well, maybe we should bring our guest back in here, really. But um, we've been a bit cheeky here. But yeah. um, we're taking yeah. over uh, <laughs> Gary's podcast. But the thing is, it seems to me that Gary is not really focused on vivisection. He's focused on certain animals in vivisection. Can I ask a question? before we bring Gary back in. Do you think the general public are concerned about ending vivisection or even know what vivisection is at the moment? I, I don't think they are. If by educating people about vivisection in general, by focusing on beagles, if that raises awareness, is that a bad thing? I don't think it's about saving only beagles. I think it's about education and raising, raising awareness of what vivisection is. But you, you seem to be assuming that that's the way it needs to be done, as though they can't, you know, the, the, the public are a bit too dim to take on board um, a message which doesn't involve beagles or something. Have they taken that on board to this point? No. No. 
I mean, they've been, we've been doing campaigns for 30 years now, and we've gone That's and true. we haven't really gotten anywhere. And, and most of those campaigns are basically focusing on on the ethics mm-hmm. of vivisection. I would say, and, and I mean, I kind of want to go back to what Ronnie said, at least from my perspective, is the most interesting question that I like to ask vegans is, why did you go vegan? Um, because that, to me, is is a really interesting question as to what motivates people to make such a significant change and to break down the walls of speciesism. Those answers are all over the map, and sometimes they're really just as simple as somebody was eating a chicken sandwich and looked over at their dog and cat and got it. And going to what Ronnie was saying is, at least from my perspective, we have to open up the door through some way to get people to see an animal as being equal to themselves or having some sort of value. Um, I just don't think it's realistic for, for me to expect that I could just go up to the average person and have them sit down in a half an hour, I can explain everything about vivisection to them. Um, they're just not going to be open to that. I guarantee that the media is not going to have that discussion. Um, but if we can open somebody up to seeing beagles running around for the first time and starting to ask those questions, I'm not pretending that people are going to go vegan on the spot or that they're going to completely be against vivisection. But you open up the opportunity for somebody to open their heart to another another being. And I think like all of us who became vegan for one reason or another didn't start off as anti-speciesists. Um, you know, something opened that up and, and it just depends on who you were and what your experience was to open that. Um, and, and I think that this is just a way of doing it. And in terms of doing a ballot measure, you get an opportunity to actually educate the public. I don't know how you could educate the public in those numbers otherwise whether it be some large organization, et cetera, who's just going to do some sort of campaign where the majority of people are going to pay attention to a campaign like that. Whereas if you're doing a ballot measure and you're educating people as to this, how, how poor the science is, that it's unnecessary, that it's unmandated, um, that these animals are basically being tortured uh, for, for needlessly because most of the products um, aren't being tested on, et cetera. I don't know how you could actually like bring people into an issue um, in a kind of like softer way. Um, and, and I will admit that I'm incredibly cynical. Um, I've had enough conversations with people. I've had enough people respond to my blog or when I write for Elephant Journal um, to know that in general, if you don't find some way to open somebody's heart to see a animal as being equal to them or having value, um, I don't know how we can do it. And also, last thing I'll say on this is um, I don't think it has to be one or the other, whether it's vegan education or vivisection or vegan education or supporting the end of hunting of whales. Um, You know, as Ronnie says, I seem to be able to do both at the same time. You know, when I'm at a circus protest, I can talk about the exotic animals, but I can also talk about veganism at the same time. So I don't think we have to make those types of choices and I think it's kind of difficult to say to somebody, you shouldn't care about wolves or you shouldn't care about vivisection. You should only care about this because, as we all know, there's such a small percentage of people who, who care about anything at all, be it human or non-human. The idea for me is if somebody has opened an, a, a door to caring about the whales, well, now it's an opportunity to get that person to see things in a bigger way or like with the people who just do the dog and cat rescues um, but eat other animals – it's a, a great opportunity to say to them, hey, you're doing this amazing work. Have you seen that there's a connection in other ways rather than just kind of having this expectation that everybody's just going to go vegan if we give them the right argument? So, Gary, since you have a lot more uh, media experience than most of us advocates, how do you decide which campaigns or where to put your energy? I mean, how do you determine what you think is going to be effective? 
Oh boy. <laughs> um, I mean, to, to be quite honest, a lot of it is people coming to us. Um, people coming to us with their campaigns, or um, you know, Mercy for Animals coming to us when they with the Farm to Fridge tour, where they went to 41 different cities with their 12-minute film on um, you know meat and dairy and egg production. I mean, the first thing we do is we look at a campaign, and we don't want to do stupid, cheesy, stunty work. Um, so I'm not interested in people wearing bikinis or dressing up like a monster. Um, we want to do we want to do real campaigns and real work. We want to work on undercover investigations, bans, um, you know, things of that nature. So a lot of it is is this something that resonates with who we are and what we want to do is as activists and as um, you know people who do media can can we do a good job with this, um, you know and and. Obviously, there's a million different campaigns. There's a million different things we can do, and there's only so much time to do some of those things. So, again, I think a lot of it is just people coming to us. I mean, we, we get approached on on projects all the time that just um, either don't interest us or are more stunty. Um, because for, for, for us, um, to kind of back up a little bit, most organizations, medium to large, haven't really worked with PR agencies before. They're doing their own their own media work, and you know the media is generally cynical about that because they think that there's something that they're selling. Whereas when you have outside outside reputation re, representation, um, the media looks at that organization as being a serious player. Um, as an example, like one of the undercover investigations we did, um, you know, the very first amount of media we got on that was really like this alleged abuse, alleged abuse. We saw that over and over again. But by the second time we worked with them, um, the alleged disappeared because the media had a certain respect for that organization because they were being represented, A, by an outside media organization and B, by somebody who knows how to do this for a living, you know. Um, so I think just in kind of general, if more organizations can figure out to do things the proper way in the proper, you know, with the proper channels and be represented outside of just their own own organization, um, the media will pay more attention. That being said, um, you really have to figure out, like going back to the farm to fridge tour, um, you know, one person could go out with to the media with a story about how animals are being abused terribly for food. And the, the story we chose was consumers have the right to know how their food is going from, you know, this farm into the supermarket and their restaurants. And it's kind of hard for the media to disagree with a statement like that, you know, making it a consumer choice. And then again, once you have the media interested in these issues, most of the time, not all, they will do a decent job with the story. Um, but if you go at them with like a, you know, this is anti-speciesist, this is abuse, most of the time they just don't care. Um, and to be quite honest with you, with some of the undercover investigations, the large national media will tell us, well, you know, this footage is just too graphic. Like, but that's the nature of animal abuse. It's graphic. Um, you know, so a lot of this is just really <laughs> fighting, trying to figure out like a really intelligent way of getting the media to pay attention to these issues that, quite honestly, they don't care about. And when we're talking about animal issues or vegan issues, you know, the first person you're interacting with who shows you any sort of interest most likely is not vegan. Then they have to go to their boss and their boss is looking at the advertisers and sponsors of these programs, their news programs, who sell and use, you know, non-humans. Um, so we're up against quite a bit, even when we are doing a good job of telling a story that might be interesting 
to them and the public. So, I mean, that's the problem. I think you're highlighting it. You know, we're in a species society and it's frustrating. And I think most activists, I'm, I'm a new activist. I haven't been doing this for 30 years. I've been doing other kinds of activism before I started working for uh, against a speciesism, but it just, you know, we all want to be as effective as possible. And I'm not sure any of us really know what works. So we're all just trying everything we know to that, that we're, we can get an audience or where uh, we can try to have an impact. And, and you do have at least um, the education experience in the PR firm to, to make bigger impact than most of us can. I think that the way that I would probably answer this is whether you're doing media outreach or whatever campaign you're doing, we have to be strategizing much better. I talked to so many people who are doing campaigns and it's like, okay, I'll give you an example. Uh, we were talking to somebody who wanted to do a campaign against um, Ringling Brothers. And they're you know, they kind of going on about this and that. And finally, I just said, so what is your goal? Is your goal to get people to turn away? Is your goal to get media attention? If you want media attention, what do you want the media to know? You know, on and on and on. And I think a lot of times, you know, we just put together a protest um, you know, and obviously we want this to end, but we don't have like any strategy in terms of how are we going to do this? What's the outreach? What are we going to say? How are we going to get media attention? What do we want the attention about? You know, how do we do this? So I'd say from, from both ends, what I think is like sorely lacking is like that lack of um, strategy, really. You see, my, yeah. my, my view is about here in the UK is that in general, I think the, um, uh, the animal protection movement uses the media quite poorly. Um, and I'm wondering from taken from what you, you you're suggesting that if the if the media is handled by um, some sort of outside media organization or public relations organization, that there's more chance of getting media attention is, is, is that basically than if it's handled by the, the actual groups themselves. It, it makes it look like you're a professional organization. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like the difference between somebody who is selling water, you know, bottled water, who's doing it themselves versus somebody who has outside representation. It, it makes it look like you're a professional organization. You know what you're doing. And, and this is just the truth. I've actually like spoken with people who have sort of like mid-sized, um, you know, animal protection non uh, nonprofits. And like I just saw something, I don't know, three or four months ago about a foie gras protest, and this was on the LA Times website. Like we called the, you know, blah 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 group and couldn't get a response. Um, that would never happen if you had a PR agency behind you. So I think a lot of times they assume, well, what happens if I call them? You know, if if they're working with a PR agency, they know that when they call me and say, I want to speak with the director, I want this to happen, that to happen, it's going to happen. So it just again makes it look like we're more professional, and it looks like we're we're playing the game the proper way. You know that that we're doing things the way that things are done, whether we like that or not. That's how things are done within the media. You know, in, this, in, in the way that like we're basically doing things just like other large organizations, just like other businesses are doing. I, I think there's like a certain level of respect um, that they automatically give you, whether that's fair or not. You know, is is not up to me to say. Um, but I know just in terms of doing some outreach with some national organizations that we've done, um, I've seen that like following up a second and third time, there's just a certain level of respect that is given to that organization and they start to take them seriously. Um, obviously, if you're a huge organization like HSUS or PETA or, you know, anybody of that size that, you know, has many years behind them and the media knows who they are, it's probably far less important. 
you know, but if you're sort of a smaller, mid-sized nonprofit trying to get respect from the media, um, I think it's really important. You seem to be saying, uh, Gary, that the media like spin doctors, which I suppose they do because it's other people like themselves. But, I mean, there's three people here who have had experience uh, of the media, but both uh, myself and Ronnie did it before the age of the Internet. And in some senses, doesn't that beg the question, you know, why, why bother too much with the species is mass media when you've got the internet and when you've got other means of communicating with people which we couldn't even dream about in the 1980s and so consequently you might say well okay there's still the seductive part of mass media is the mass part I understand that sociologically at the same time the mass me- media is deeply speciesist and so consequently that means you have to play the game and that's what you called it just now a game and so consequently that means you have to come down to the lowest common denominator so They'll say, well, you know, give us the sexy stories, you know, give us the girls with the the, the tops off or give us the species that, um, you know, people will go for. And that means that we have to corrupt our own message, doesn't it? I wouldn't say we have to corrupt our messages. I mean, in, in terms of working um, like on undercover investigations, I mean, we're just basically saying this is animal abuse and this is wrong. There's no like you know, going towards one particular species, there's no, obviously there's, you know, no women in bathing suits. I mean, those are serious stories. And I also think in terms of like the Beagle Freedom Project, it's a serious story. It's just a way you tell the story. And to kind of go back to your your initial question, um, you know, when our client is in the Wall Street Journal, that goes out to potentially 4 million people. Um, That's why you have to do this. Um, it's not about doing things in a goofy way. It's about finding an intelligent, smart way of getting the media to care about things they just don't care about. And forget about just the animal rights issues. I mean, that's any social justice issue. Um, you know, look at what's going on, at least in, in the U.S. with this Occupy um, Wall Street and, and other cities going on, uh, which is actually happening all over the world. But if you just pay attention to the way the media portrays it, I mean, they don't care about it. And when they do care about it, they just tell their own goofy stories. Um, so ultimately, even as somebody who does PR, who you know writes a professional pitch or a, a news release, I mean, the media can always do whatever they want with a story like that. Um, well, yeah, the, again, that's the not... thing. I mean, the, you know, the, the danger, I mean, I, I, I covered this myself in my own research in the sense that sociologists talk about the media dance. And in other words, that for a social movement, they're seduced by the idea of media, especially the mass media, because of the mass part. At the same time, there's a recognition that the social movements themselves can't control the content of the media. And one of the main things that the media do with what they see to be opposition is not necessarily just to blank them out. It's to kind of cover them, but in a kind of ridiculing kind of way. But doesn't that just really suggest that the mass media is not for us in the first place. Doesn't it just suggest that the grassroots is where we ought to be focused rather than trying to figure out a way of getting coverage by a group of people who don't care? And, and that's what you said. They don't care about it. So what, why, why would we focus on them? Well, it's not exactly a um, only one way of doing things in, in the same way that you can advocate for circus elephants and veganism simultaneously one can actually be trying to get the Wall Street Journal and NBC Nightly News to care about your issue while also using social networks, blogs, etc. I mean, it's not just one or the other. Um, I think to shun them would be a mistake because, again, when they do a good job, um, like with the Beagle Freedom Project and, and again, some of the undercover investigations we've done for Mercy for Animals, it's just huge amounts of, of education that we're just not going to reach through our own social media. You know, I, I think we have to do both. Um, I would say 
that we shouldn't be doing stunty things. We shouldn't be doing stupid things in our media because, again, we have facts and we have ethics in our, on our side. But I don't think it's realistic to just, you know, again, like I sent that that uh, thing for saying the other day, they're just not interested in a straightforward story. So we have to be creative in the way that we do it. But at the same time, that story needs to be going out through social media as well. It's not kind of a one or the other. Um, and I'm also not so unrealistic that if we just got the right story, um, you know, on Anderson Cooper, people are going to go vegan. But I think it's part of it's just part of the education that we have to do. I mean, I, I think to ignore it would be a mistake. I'm wondering whether it's it might be worth us over here looking into actually setting up some sort of PR agency for the grassroots, you know, for, for the sort of grassroots movement that could could kind of help them to get stuff into the media. Whether that's feasible, I, I don't know. But from what you say, it, it, it might well it might well be worth it. Well, I, I would say at a minimum, training is really important. You know, understanding like how to use the media. If you're going to have a demo, like put somebody in charge to speak with the media um, as best you can, kind of control these sorts of messages. I mean, I think there's a lot of things one can do in lieu of you know, starting a PR agency or working with an agency that will at least help in that way. Um, I know particularly like with some grassroots uh, grassroots groups out here, the disorganization just doesn't look good. You know, I mean, you, you want to basically have somebody there who's going to be representing that group's grassroots organization, who's going to be able to send out pitches, who's going to be able to write a, a professional press release, um, you know, just some of the basics. So th I, I think that is really important for grassroots people, because, again, all that stuff can be used, again, in terms of social media, in terms of creating your own um, videos, your own blog sites, et cetera. And again, it just it just makes it whether we like this or not, it makes them look more professional to the media that they're trying to reach out to. Yeah, I mean, I think we could probably say, whatever was, was kind of set up over here would, uh, if it was to, to do the grassroots, it would have to be voluntary. It would it it wouldn't be it would be people doing it as volunteers. So maybe um, a group of people that were more experienced or had a lot of experience in work with the media, just kind of being there for other people to help and advise. You know, it's a group that group a group that um, people could turn to for advice on how to go about getting stories in the media. Yeah, and and I think again, just going back a little bit further too, as well, is is not every campaign, not every demo needs media. Um, you know, what again? Does this campaign need media? If it does, what is the message that we're trying to get across? Um, what are we asking the public for, you know, what are getting kind of clear on the strategy of what we're doing? Because again, not every, not every campaign needs media attention nor will media attention help that campaign. No, I agree. I, th I think the campaigns where it's most important to get media attention are those where, where ordinary members of the public can actually do something themselves where you're actually asking. Cause I was, I always think that when, when you're in the media, you're actually, for instance, you know, I'm very conscious that say if I'm being interviewed on a radio program, that I'm not talking to the, the, the person that's interviewing me. I'm talking to the public who are listening to that program. And what, what, what my message is to them. So if right. it's something where people can, if it's something where people can um, help the campaign by boycotting something, if, if it's, 
like for instance veganism or or, or if it's a, a campaign against the circus for instance where people can actually help by just not doing something you know not consuming, consuming animal products or, or not going to the circus or whatever then it, that message can be got out through the media the media can be used to get that message to the public and so in those sort of campaigns i think the the, the, the use of the media can be very important yeah, I agree. And also, too, it also depends on maybe you're asking the public to come out for a demo. Um, you know, again, if you if you have some clarity as to like what what is it that you're asking the public for? Believe it or not, that's really important because I, I just I see too many people who don't really know what they're getting attention for. And then they get some media attention and it's all over. And again, like what what's the ask? You know, what do you want from the public? What do you want from the media? What are you asking for? Um, and it seems like that's common sense, but I, I see too many grassroots organizations, even like sort of mid-level organizations who don't really know what they're asking for, you know, who don't really have a strategy for getting media attention, um, you know, and then you see going back to the people who just sort of do more stunty PR, um, it's great for their organizations, but that's not great in terms of education. You know, you just go like, oh, today these, these protesters from this group did something really stunty, isn't that cute? Um, that's not going to get information out about fur or vivisection or about veganism for that matter. Obviously, it's really important, hopefully, that organizations aren't focused on just getting their name out there for fundraising and focus more about the particular issue that they're trying to get information out to the public for. Gary, can I ask another question about vivisection? A lot of experimentation that's being done is being done for drugs that are already on the market. Can you explain why that happens? That is something that I've just learned about more recently. Part of that uh, article from the LA Times was about Allergan, who makes Botox. Um, and recently the FDA approved a new method for them to test Botox because they had to test each new batch on live animals. Um, and in terms of like the 14 beagles and four bunnies that we've uh, rescued thus far, only the first two did we have a sense of what they were tested for. We were told that they were tested for toxicity on products that are already on the market. Um, so sometimes that can be as simple as a brand name drug is about to go, um, oh, the, the uh, copyright's about to expire um, and become genetic or generic, sorry, generic drugs. Um, so that company will literally change a single molecule and then because of mandatory testing, we'll have to go through the entire testing over and over again. Um, but in terms of like, um, other drugs, et cetera, it seems like they force them most of the time for each new batch that goes through. Um, and the other answer to that is that this is a multi-billion dollar industry um, where you're talking about the U.S. government spends $12 billion a year on medical testing. Um, I believe they spend about $100 million a year just in the military on testing. Now you're talking about pet food companies who make food for these animals. You're talking about the people who produce cages, the researchers, the universities, security. There's so much money at stake, and they're always going to constantly look for new reasons to keep this industry going. Um, so sometimes it's just as cynical as this is just a multi-billion dollar industry with too many people's hands in there, you know, involved in this. And they're going to continually figure out some way to keep testing on products that have been tested on, as well as really just the um, non-medical testing. I don't know the specifics on this, but I've read enough about it that almost every single chemical has been tested in one shape or another on animals. 
Um, so most of these companies are doing this just to protect themselves uh, against lawsuits to be able to say, well, we, you know, sprayed this in Bunny's eyes and, you know, we put a warning on there. So, gee, too bad you sprayed it in your eyes. You can't sue us. So there, there's a lot of different reasons why they continually are testing on products that have already been on the market, some of them for many, many years. One of the, the labs where we thought we were going to be getting some beagles uh, a couple of weeks ago is for a medication that's been, on, I believe, available for almost five years now. So I can't specifically tell you why are they still testing the exact same product that um, humans are putting in their eyes right now and aren't getting sick or dying. You know, how are they allowed to do that and why are they doing that? Yeah. Is it, has it got a lot to do with grant money? I'm, sh I'm sure it does. I mean, again, we're talking about just the U.S. government spending $12 billion a year. I mean, everybody wants that money. Right. Um, I, know, I know that at least some of the universities are able to, like, allocate the monies in – in certain ways, so let's say a large university gets a $150 million grant, that $150 million grant doesn't have to specifically go to, you know, the non-human uh, primate testing that they got the money for. Some of that is going to basically paying maintenance fees, it's paying um, certain people's salaries, so it's, it's to a certain degree, it's almost like getting a partial blank check. I mean, at the end of the day, there's just so much money involved, and that's who you're kind of fighting against. now. The positive of this, at least in, in my mind, is looking at this Allergan story where the FDA said they don't long, no longer have to test Botox. Um, and I know that there was another one recently, and I can't recall the company, who, was, who basically got approval to no longer have to test on animals. Is I think that there's a way to sort of approach some of these pharmaceutical companies and say to them, like, look, we probably have a lot of commonalities here in the sense that you're spending hundreds of millions of dollars each to test on products that you've already gone through that are already on the market, work with us legislatively because you're going to save money and we're going to hopefully get them to stop, you know, torturing and killing as many animals. Because um, again, we're not asking for bigger cages or better treatment. We're asking them to stop torturing these particular animals. Um, so I think that there might be an opportunity and I don't know how one would go about this at this point, you know, to go to a large pharmaceutical company and say, look, you could save a lot of money. Um, obviously, Allergan is fight was fighting this Botox thing, not because they're good people and care about animals. They want to save money. It's much cheaper to not have to test on animals. Mm -hmm. um, so to a certain degree, I, I wonder if we would have some allies at some of these companies you know, in terms of maybe getting a federal ban, I don't, you know, or maybe not obviously a federal ban because I just don't think that's realistic at this point, but maybe changing some of those mandatory laws to say for any product that's on the market, um, it can no longer be tested on animals or something like that. I haven't thought this through, hmm. um, but, I, but I do think that there is a possibility that they would support something. Yeah, it's a complicated issue, isn't it? Do you think we've come up with any, any realistic solutions today? You know, I think I think sadly all these issues are complicated. You yeah. know, none of them. Are, if they were straightforward, they would have all been solved by now. Um, you know, look at the fur. Fur. You know, we, we've been fighting fur for the, since the 70s, and there was a, a point where it like really dropped drastically. Now it's everywhere, all over again. Which is why I like the idea of a ban because it doesn't matter what the fickle public wants. You can't. They're just not allowed to do it. You know, and, and I think that. For, for me, I think it's kind of difficult because you're going to have people, you know, activists and vegans who are going to have a particular point of view um, who aren't going to want to support campaigns like this. And that's mm -hmm. totally cool. It's obviously their choice, um, just in the same way that, you know, there are certain campaigns that just don't interest me that I won't support for one of many reasons. I honestly believe that if the public had an opportunity to be 
educated on vivisection totally in terms of the ethical um, and as well as the science involved that I think we can make huge inroads. And the question again is, how do we get them to pay attention? Because I just don't think that people in their busy lives who are incredibly self-centered and for the most part aren't interested in these issues, how do we get them to open their heart in the first place? And, and again, for, for me, let's open them up through an animal that they're familiar with, that they have experiences with, that they feel warm and fuzzy towards, and then educate them that way. You know, open that door and see what happens. Well, we were talking earlier, and we were of the opinion that the, the average person on the street probably doesn't even know what vivisection is. Oh, I, I agree with you a thousand percent. I'll, I'll give you this example. Um, with a lot of the media, um, the TV media, as well as the newspapers who covered Beagle Freedom Project, most of those were online. And almost, first of all, almost every single comment was um, against vivisection, um, which is just absolutely shocking because everything we've done in terms of media outreach for, you know, our, our clients as well as some of the campaigns we've worked on, it's always 90% against what we want if, if we're even that high. I mean, if we're even that low. And secondly, almost every single comment was, oh, my God, I had no idea. I didn't even know they tested on household products. Gee, I didn't know this. I thought like 10 years ago they, they forced them to stop using them on cosmetics. Um, so the public has no idea. And, and the, the really great thing is everybody kept saying, I'm going to go to your website, go to that link, and make sure I no longer purchase these products. I, I think probably more so like they don't know what the name vivisection means. I think no. they probably have a, have a good idea that animals are being experimented on and are being used in, in a ter oh, yeah. terrible way. I think probably just they, they I don't expect that they, they know a great many details about what's going on. I think that the, the public believes that almost all testing is being done on rats and mice and it's to save our lives. That And, and they don't believe that by accident. That's what the yeah. industry has been telling them for, you know, 30, 40, 50 years now. Um, and I do believe that, that you know, my less cynical self says I believe that if we had an opportunity to really educate people in a smart way, that we would have a lot of support on our side, whether it be for a ban or for a proposition, you know, a ballot measure. I think that we could get a lot of people to support something like this, you know, and, and it's just a matter of like, how do we open that door? I mean, just we all know just within, um, you know, the animal rights community. We could all probably sit here and in 10 minutes come up with 65 different campaigns we could come up with from, you know, the moon bears to uh, the foxes being shot, you know, airily, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, there's so many campaigns. And I, you multiply that by the people outside who, forgetting about social justice issues, who are unemployed, who are figuring out how to, like, you know, basically get their kid to ballet. Um, so we have to find some way that we're going to catch their attention, hopefully catch it in a way that opens their heart and not just, like you know, titillates them. Yeah, speaking about veganism kind of covers all of them, doesn't it? It does, but I think we also have to be realistic that, again, like let's say a media, you can't just go to the media. I can't just send out a press release and say, here's why everybody should be an ethical vegan. I mean, <laughs> you, you have to actually have a story. You have to have something to get them to pay attention in the first place. And at least in terms of like my experience is I think that if you can find a way to find out what sort of non-human animal uh, or what type of non-human animal that people have an experience with or feel warmly towards, you you open that up. And I'm also not so unrealistic that, you know, when I have these conversations with somebody that they're just going to go vegan on the spot. But, you know, my, my goal in my activism is um, I don't want you to ever leave without being unclear that I support ethical veganism. 
you know, and I've, and I've been able to do it. I mean, not doesn't always happen when you're at a circus protest, but, you know, you try and they move on. And but, I, you know, the goal is to try to figure out how to educate people in a way that they're, they're willing to be open. And I just know from experience that intellectual arguments don't work as well as emotional arguments. Um, and if you can figure out how to open somebody's heart to something, then you, you at least have that potential to plant that seed. You know, and I just, I don't know. I, I guess for me, it's how do I save individual lives? I, I, yeah, I would love to be able to answer, well, what happens when this lab gives us 14 beagles and then they buy 14 more? I don't have that answer. But for those 14 that are now living in great houses, like they're alive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in terms of, of most of our activism, so much of it is just abstract. It's just, you know, 58 billion land animals worldwide. It's trillions of fishes. You know, this is like, literally saving animals right now and i don't know if that's the best way to do it but i think you can kind of do both at the same time i'd like to thank gary smith very much for spending his time with us today in what was a very interesting discussion thanks gary 